being no larger than an ordinary man, but possessed of powers never before realized on Earth. Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you, and I'm glad you're here. Happy Father's Day. If you're a father, if you might ever be a father, if you have a father, I hope this is a good day. And I hope uh, you find reason to celebrate uh, in it. <clears throat> and um, we want to show that video one more time, sort of as our little postcard. I mean, because it's kind of a dad's thing, you know, superheroes. My kid's a super kid, that kind of thing. So hopefully you... Uh, you enjoyed that, uh, but we're coming to the end of that now because we're coming to the end of our reading uh, in the uh, Love This Book. You know, we've been reading through. We've got the whole theme. We've got the whole story down now in these first six months of the year, reading through uh, the Older Testament in Love This Book, and we're coming to the end of that this week. This week, we're going to be reading uh, some Old Testament, but mostly New Testament comments on the Old Testament, and uh, that's a good chance, again, for me to say, start now. If you haven't been a part of the reading with us, start this week. You know, next week, you'll have journals, uh, and we'll start the New Testament in earnest, and for the rest of the year, we're going to read through the uh, New Testament, and it's going to be quite a ride. It's going to be a great adventure, so we encourage you uh, to be a part of that. And being that. But before we leave the, the Older Testament, just want to sort of summarize. We're going to look at a passage today that summarizes everything we've learned and, and seen in the Older Testament. And as we've read through, I'm sure you've had the reaction like, hmm, I didn't know that was in there. And oh, I don't understand that. And eat, you know. And, and it's kind of weird because we live in a culture where people tend to take stuff out of context, particularly out of the Older Testament, and they don't understand us as Christians. Uh, they, uh, and, and then there's the, the, the situation where, uh, you know, we look at it and we think, man, that's crazy stuff. That's just st strange stuff. And, and when you get in the thick of it, the people that are living in it, it must have been strange to them too. But when you stand back and look at it the way we have, hopefully you begin to see that there's a storyline. Hopefully you begin to see the hand of God in it. I mean, even, even today we have situations where we go, God, why did you do that? Like I, I was mowing my lawn yesterday and a nice little furry bunny came jumping out of the bushes and the rest of the time, I was dodging these stinking little mole holes. I mean, not, they're not little. They're huge in my yard. Here, here's a throwback for you. My yard looks like Caddyshack. I mean, and it's like there's these fuzzy little monsters that live underground that have no reason for existence other than to cause pain and agony to me. I did, couldn't understand it. And I just think, I was just thinking, God, this is trying to be humorous about this, but why didn't you just stop at fuzzy little bunnies? Why did you have to make those, you know? And the reality is, is that as we've read through the Older Testament, we realize that God knows stuff we don't know, that he's got a higher plan. In fact, you could summarize the Old Testament with this statement. In fact, the first half of it's an actual quote from the book of Isaiah. It says, God's ways are higher than our ways, and he's had a plan all along. And hopefully you've begun to see that, because as we play it into the New Testament, as we take that into the New Testament, it's going to have a very practical and relevant um, 
touch on our lives, and it's going to have a very practical, relevant touch today. Because you, as we looked at the Old Testament, we, we saw people trying to shove God out of their lives and shove God out of society. <clears throat> and it was a process that we're seeing come alive today. And, and it's a process called secularization. That's whenever anybody pushes it off, it pushes God out of the picture totally. Now, it wasn't pure secularization in ancient Israel. They were trying to replace God with another God, so there was still sort of a religious thing. But trying to push uh, God out of the picture completely, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, that's the beginning of the process of secularization. And, and we see it all the time. Like maybe you've heard this one. Religion is a source of all evil in the world, especially Christianity. We've got to get rid of it because the time is running out. That's the source of evil, and that's what's causing us all the problems in the world. Have you heard that? Millennials, you've heard that. I mean, it's all over the Internet. It's all over the, it, there's a good case can be made that it was started by a, a guy named Sam Harris, who's one of the four horsemen of the new so-called atheists. Uh, a number of years ago, he wrote a book, but basically that was the theme, that you've got to get rid of Christianity if you want the evil and the problems of the world to go away. Uh, and, but more and more people, even in our town in Portland, they're, they're saying that. If, if you know me and you hung around me at all, you've heard me say this story over and over again. So if you've heard it, just humor me for a minute, because I'm sure there's people here who haven't heard it. Uh, our son, Ben, who will be back here, by the way, in a couple of weeks, um, has been going downtown and doing uh, acting in some of the larger playhouses in Portland the last couple of years. And the first one that he had, he was in a, uh, a show about Peter Pan at one of the, I think it was the third largest uh, theater in, in Portland. And uh, he was a pirate, and he was acting, he had an acting partner who was also a pirate, a guy who played a woman pirate, but anyway, we're going on, it's Portland. And so they, um, they, they, they were acting, and, and the one, somehow the first week of practice, this guy says, hey, you know what, I, I don't know how that came up, but it, it, you know, religion, especially Christianity, is the source of all evil. You know where he got it? He got it off the internet. It's the source of all evil, and we just got to get rid of that. We got to deal with that, or, or the world's going to go to hell, and so forth and so on. Metaphorically, I don't believe in hell, that kind of stuff. And, um, and a couple weeks later, a few weeks later, uh, Ben had gotten permission to skip two hours of practice because he was going to preach here for me. And so he went to practice two hours late, and the guy says, hey, where were you? He goes, oh, I was at church. And the guy goes, oh. He says, no, 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 it's worse than that. I was preaching for my dad at the church. And he goes, oh, man, he said, Christianity, the church, that's the, we got to get rid of that. Cause source of it. Not you, man. You are weird. I don't understand you. But the rest of those guys, we got to get rid of those guys. And, and, and so, but, but it's an effort, see, to push God out of the picture and push him completely out of our culture and our world. And here's the dirty little secret of secularism. And I'm sad to say, this last two weeks, we've seen the result. The dirty little secret is if you push God out of it completely, if you try to live as if there is no such a thing as a spiritual realm, a spiritual world, that there is no such thing as a spiritual life that is directly connected and practically connected to all physical life and emotional life and everything else, you try to say that as society, you say it long enough, you know what happens? Hopelessness rises like crazy. And we've seen the result of that in the, 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 the very public suicides of Anthony Bourdain, which, you know, that's a sad one too. I, Every once in a while, I'd get a little fix of, you know, uh, wild-talking atheist, Anthony Bourdain, on, on, on his food show, traveling around the world. Or, or uh, Kate Spade, didn't buy her stuff, <laughs> bought it for our daughters. And, 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 you know, it's just so sad. But, but what those public suicides have at least done is it started to get us to ask the conversation, why are people so sad? 
And to realize that the suicide rate the last couple of decades as we've become our own people and pushed God off the picture and had this revolution and the sexual revolution and that revolution, that suicide rates have gone way up. Hope is not on the rise in, in our secular culture. And, and we began to realize that, for example, this week in the, the Washington Post, there's a guy by the name of David uh, Von Drela, <clears throat> who used to be the editor-at-large for Time Magazine. Now he writes for the Washington Post. He wrote an article that says, our culture assumes that happiness is the normal uh, human condition. This is the title. Our culture assumes that happiness is the normal human condition. Why? Because it's really not, if you look at the, the, the history of the world, it's, it's not about being happy. It's got to be about something deeper. It's got to be about some meaning, some purpose. And from a Christian worldview, we realize that we've, we've learned this, we've seen this, and we're going to see it big time in the New Testament, but we've seen it in the Older Testament. We're, we're gonna, we've seen that God is all about joy. Nothing wrong with happiness. I mean, you can find happiness. Even in Happy Valley, you can find happiness, but it's usually fleeting. But God's joy isn't fleeting. It continues on, and it lifts us up, and it buoys us up, even in the worst of circumstances. And so what we're going to see today in the New Testament in a book called Hebrews is that, that that's possible, and that it's practical. And it's not just some, you know, leave your brain at the door kind of thing, but it's real, and it's possible for people to, and why? Because God's ways are higher than our ways, and he it has a plan all along. It's possible to have hope in the midst of whatever circumstances. And as we left off the Old Testament last week with Nehemiah, you can have the joy of the Lord. And guess what? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, and you can turn there uh, now if you want to. But as you go there, let me just sort of give you the background of where these people are out because we find some parallels with our situation in the world today. The, the Christians, particularly the, the Jewish or Hebrew Christians, were under tremendous um, pressure when, in the first century when this was written. Okay, The first century, uh, uh, the, the reason this letter was written was because the Jewish people were getting it coming and going. The Jewish Christians, that is. They were being persecuted by their brothers and sisters who were um, Jewish people and being kicked out of what uh, Caesar at that time began to call Palestine, or the province of Judea at the time. Uh, and the Roman Empire was in control of that. Uh, they, were being, they were being persecuted by those Jewish people, so they dispersed what's called the diaspora all over the Roman Empire. But then they found themselves persecuted and the more and more pressure on them from uh, the uh, secular people in the Roman Empire. And so they got it coming and going. It's kind of like us. I mean, we, we, we feel more and more pressure. I mean, we're not nearly in the situation they're in, but, but the, feeling pressure from the culture, but also sort of pressure from the rising Christian subculture that's kind of, you know, pre pressuring from different angles. So, so you begin to, they're in, they're in a state that's far worse than that. They're getting it pressured from the, the state of Rome and as well from uh, their, their ethnic uh, brothers and sisters, the Jewish people who are still Jewish people, uh, Jewish, uh, following the Judaic religion, not uh, Christianity. And, and so it was written probably, I mean, some, most scholars say well, around 64 to 68 A.D., now here, I'm going to show you my bias here, and I'm not nearly as smart as those scholars who give this its date, the, the, book of, the letter of, uh, of the, to the Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians. Um, but my guess is it was written about four or five years earlier than that, maybe from Rome, uh, because my view is, is it was written by Paul. We don't know who wrote it because there's no, there's no name on it. Um, 
Uh, and, and the other thing about it that I, I got to tell you is that the book of Hebrews or the letter to Hebrews is written in very high fashion Greek. It's what's called classical Greek. It's not the trade language Greek, the basic, you know, uh, you know like, like English. We've got sort of trade language, you know, and euphemisms and forget about it and you know, that kind of stuff. That stuff's not in high classical Greek. And this letter is written in that way, which is different than Paul's other letters. So that's why people say, well, no, nah, it probably not written by Paul. Uh, but my view is, is, is that he was highly educated. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew how to write in this. He was always using uh, scribes to, transliter- or to, to transcribe his letters to people. Maybe he had one who knew classical Greek. I don't know. Maybe there was a reason for, for it. And, and the other thing is that we're going to see today, Paul uses metaphors like athletic contests for the Christian life. And it's in the passage we're going to read today in the book of Hebrews. Okay? So all, all I'm saying is, that's my view. You're not a heretic if you think somebody else wrote it, because it's not, you know, it it's clearly belongs in the Bible, and it doesn't have a name on it. Of course, I could be right. So but, but the thing is, but that, so I think it's probably 64, but here's the, th- here's the reason why I go through all of that. Because the, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, which we're not going to deal with today, the writer of Hebrews says, look, you have not yet shed blood like Jesus did for your faith. So they hadn't, in, in 68, many of them already had. Because in 64, for example, there was this fire in Rome. And the rumor is, in fact, we have this from a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. The rumor was that Nero, the Caesar himself, set the fire so he could blame it on the Jews and the Christians. So they'd already experienced some pretty nasty persecution. And the thing for us to realize is, yes, we have not experienced, you know, wild animals in the Colosseum. And that's not in the foreseeable future. But the pressures and how do you deal with it and how do you live with the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is one giant example from the Older Testament as it goes through the entire Old Testament in one chapter. So we're going to go through the entire Old Testament today. So buckle up. Forget your Father's Day plans. Here we go. We're going to start with verse 10, or I mean, sorry, chapter 10, verse 39, the verse just before chapter 11, because we get the point of why he's writing. He says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are, destroy, and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. You see, what he's talking about is the pressures to shrink back. I mean, we have those pressures. We have the pressures of our schedules. We have the pressures of, you know, our worries. We have the pressures of our wants and the pleasures that we like to have. We have the pressure, uh, the pressure of, you know, being somebody and the prestige and so forth. And so we have all kinds of pressures like that if we let them have their way. And he says those things will let you shrink back, but you don't need to shrink, let it shrink back. What he's doing here is he's comparing the reality of what we're told is a steady diet of what really is great in life with the, 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 or the illusion of it, of what's really great in life, with the reality of what God has set in motion for us. And so he's saying, we don't, we don't need to act like that. We don't need to be like that. We're not in that situation. We can do other things, and we can live in different ways that bring us to a place of hope. For example, he gives all kinds of examples throughout the book of, of, of Hebrews why that's true. For example, in chapter 10, just before this verse, he talks about a famous, a famous statement you know, about going to church. You've probably heard your pastor talk about this 
you know, nag you about this. It's, it's, it's verse 25 of, of chapter 10. It says, don't give up gathering together as some are beginning to be in the habit of doing. In other words, gather as a church. When the church doors are open, be there. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't go on vacation or whatever. But it says, be there. And what's interesting is the very next verse, verse 25 or 26, says, if you continue to live even after you're saved in sin and doing sinful things, then of course you're not going to have hope in this life. Now, you say, Dwayne, are you making a connection between going to church and not going to church and being at church and not and sinning? I'm not making that connection. You're free to make it if you want to. I'm just saying that that's kind of how he says it's one of those things that brings us hope is gathering together. And, he, and, and basically the, the chapter of, of uh, 11 of he, book of Hebrews is all about having faith, but the reason for having faith is the joy that is set before us. It's explaining how we don't need to shrink back no matter what the circumstances, but we can live in the joy and the power and the strength of Christ himself. So let's look at the first verse of chapter 11, which sort of sets the stage and explains where this thing is going, where the whole Older Testament is going, and it flies right on into the New Testament. Verse 1. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope and hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Now, this is a powerful, powerful statement. It's kind of, it's famous, so, you know, we, we memorized it as kids if you were in church and all that kind of stuff. But let's stop and pause and see what it really, really says. He's saying there's really two things that faith does. It gives you confidence and it gives you assurance about some specific things. But the first thing you need to know is that little word, what, the confidence in what, we hope for? That's actually a word that's not just a theological statement. It's a practical statement. It's the word, the Greek word, I'm going to tell you what it, what it, what it is so you can hear what it sounds like. It's pragmaton. It means pragmatic. You can translate it things. In other words, if you've got an ESV or NASV, it says that. It says the confidence in the things we hope for, in the events that we hope God will do in our lives, either now or in eternity, the promises that he's made. We can have confidence, practically speaking. It's a very earthy statement. It's not just, you know, spiritual pie in the sky by and by. It's right now, right here, we can have that kind of confidence uh, because of who God is. In fact, he's saying two things very practically about what faith does in our lives. Let's, Let's put this on the screen. Look at this. It says, first, first thing, this business about confidence is more than wish fulfillment, Christian faith gives us objective ground for confident living. In other words, it gives us objective ground. It gives us actual evidence, or what I like to say, it gives us furniture in our minds and in our hearts to hang our confidence on. It, it, gives, us, it gives us, so it won't just go flying out of our hearts and minds. It, it gives us a very practical, real-life, everyday way to believe that what God says he's going to promise, he's going to do because we start to see evidence of it in front of us. In fact, it says that we actually see evidence and when it, when it comes to this business of assurance, as he says, assurance about what we do not see, that's the second thing he's saying. Moving forward in life, Christian faith connects us with the existence of a reality that we can't physically see right now. In other words, faith actually gives us a kind of sixth sense because our physical sense is made to God and see it, but the sixth sense, the faith sense, is still just as practical and just as real because we begin to see evidence that 
if this is true, what I'm living right now, then you know what? What God said about the, 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 the different reality out there, that that's actually there, that it's really real, that it's actually touching on my life right now. That's what, what he's trying to say about what faith does. It puts us in connection with that. And so for the next several verses, the whole chapter really, 24 times he uses this word, by faith, by faith. It's like he takes a jackhammer and just hammers it. It's faith. It's, that's how you connect with it. It's faith. It's faith. What he's saying is it's not just a theological statement. Faith is how we keep from getting lost in the weeds of worries, of pleasure, of, of, of power and of you know, of all the stuff that we have and how we avoid getting lost in the baggage. We'll talk about that a little bit later. It's, it's how we move beyond all those pressures that we feel. It's also a statement that we are for something. We're for that reality. We're for that confident living. We're not just against a bunch of stuff. In fact, we're more for stuff than we're against stuff. That's what he's saying. And that's, when you begin to realize that that's what Christian faith is, you begin to realize, wow, that is a positive influence, not just on me, but in, in this world, and in living in this world, and living in, in this country, and in this place. And so he goes on to say, in, beginning at verse 2, he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. Let me just pause for this. That the ancients were commended for their faith. Okay, they were commended, if you, if you remember reading some of these stories, some of these people, it's like, you know, they, they have this incredible faith, and then the next minute they do something really stupid, right? What he's saying is, is God commended them for the faith they had. And if God commended them for the faith they had, don't you think he's going to commend us for the faith? It's not about us, we'll get to this later too, but it's not about us twisting up as much faith as we can. No, God commends us for the faith we have and takes it from there and, try, and seeks to grow that faith if we put it in his hands. But he commends us for the faith we have already. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, here in verse 3, he starts right off by going all the way back to Genesis and God's creation, right? And he's saying um, <clears throat> the power of faith uh, in God's creation and God's word. And we know this because when it says God's command, he could have used one of two words for that. One is logos, which means word. We see that in John chapter 1. But he doesn't use that word. He uses the word rhema, which literally means and specifically means God's proclaiming speaking word. That God's word spoken has a power to, to, to uh, uh, bring the universe into existence. And that's, that's what it did. And that's what he did. And, we, and what his point is, is we see the results every single day. And when you realize that, there's no pressure, there's no need like many non-believers in our world today to kind of downgrade and, you know, make it, you know, that it, it seems fantastical. This world, this beauty that we see out there on a sunny day in Oregon, woo is amazing. It's almost miraculous, but... You, you know, but there's this pressure, if you don't believe in that God, to kind of downgrade it. Well, it's not really miraculous because it can be explained by this and that and so forth and so on. But it really is. And what he's saying is, is that there's, there's this foundation to our faith that God started all those years ago. We weren't there when the universe was formed, is what he's saying. But by faith, we can see it. By and that's the foundation of all our faith. Let me, let me give you one of my favorite illustrations from Israel of the foundation 
of my faith. And, and, and um, in a couple of weeks, you're going to get some information if you want it. Uh, the conference, we're putting together a, a trip to Israel next year in May of, late May t- 2019 um, with our conference of churches. And, uh, but here's one thing I always have to tell people when we do this. Okay, the, the old line, maybe you've seen the commercial on TV, come walk where Jesus walked. That's a little disingenuous because Jesus didn't walk there. I mean, even the Via Della Rosa, he didn't walk there. That was a crusader-made road. He walked like 18 feet down somewhere where we haven't even dug up the dirt yet. Okay? But there are some places in Israel that you feel like you're getting closer. And, and when you see this slide, you're going to go, that's really neat, Dwayne. It's just a pile of rocks. But look at this, look at this. You know what this is? This is, the, this is the wall for the White Synagogue. The White Synagogue was a famous synagogue for the Jewish people, and it's in Capernaum. They didn't even know where it was until about 80 years ago when they dug up Capernaum, okay? Also a place that Jesus hung out. I'll get to that in a minute. But the White Synagogue was a, is a famous synagogue. I'm not sure why, but it was destroyed in the 300s by the Romans or somebody, and then it was rebuilt, and so it's a big deal to Jewish people too. But you see the black rocks compared to the white rocks? The Black Rocks are the foundation of the Capernaum Synagogue that was there in the early first century. Those Black Rocks are the exact synagogue that Jesus stood on and talked in and taught and healed people, like in Luke chapter 4. That's getting you a lot closer to where Jesus walked. But all, I, I, that's why it's one of my favorite places. And it's not an idolatry thing. It's a reminder that that... Those rocks, we have just a solid foundation through our faith in believing and living what we live as those rocks at Capernaum. And that, I think, is the point that he's trying to make when he says, even though you weren't there at the creation, none of us were when the universe was created, in spite of all that, you, in fact, have that kind of solid foundation upholding your faith. And that gives an incredible basis for hope which brings the joy for what's set before us, as we'll see in a bit. But the, the, the writer of Hebrews goes on, he summarizes the whole Old Testament. He goes on, uh, we're talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah, and then he gets to Abraham, and he has a long litany on Abraham. But right in the middle of the Abraham thing, it's like he pauses and stops and says, oh, I just got to make my point. So he makes his point. Look at, look at this in verse 13. About four verses, 13 to 16. It says, all these people, he's describing from the Older Testament, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. In other words, they didn't get the things that they were promised. Abraham didn't get everything. He welcomed it from a distance, that God would bless the world through him and make him a great nation and make his ancestors a great nation. He didn't see it, but he believed it. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country that they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see, there's a very, very practical principle embedded in here. He says, they weren't thinking of this world. They were looking for a different city. They were looking for a different thing. What this is saying is carrying off that idea of creation is that these people in the Older Testament are people who were um, 
seeing in creation every single day when they would go. They saw a promise of a God embedded in all that stuff out there, embedded in their life and their physical selves. The promise that there really is a better world. There really is something to hope for. There really is a place of no crying, no pain, no sorrow, no decay. There really is that kind of place. And they saw that promise embedded in the very creation. And we, we, take, it, we take creation, we take our lives, we take this world so, for granted so often that we miss the promise. That's what he's saying. In other words, to summarize it, here, here's what he's really saying. You already have got all you need for this kind of faith. You and I do. They did. We do. It is, it's not some magical thing. It's not some special thing. And think about this. The patriarchs, sometimes we look at the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we're going, well, I'd have faith like that too if God kept showing up in my life and I could actually see him. If he actually talked to me, Right? But if hopefully by now when you've read through those stories, you realize that there were years and years and years between those direct interactions with God for those people. Those interactions were rare for them too. And they didn't even have a Bible. A little later in, this, uh, in, in chapter 12, he's going to make the case, and he makes the case clearly in, um, in uh, Romans chapter 8, that God even uses the nasty stuff and the difficult stuff as a, as, a, as, a, as a, he turns it on his head as a fight against the devil in the long run, as a challenge against the devil. And also that you and I have more reason to have faith because we've got the scriptures, we've got Christ, we've got the Holy Spirit in our lives. Those guys didn't have all of that. And it was years and years and years before their interactions with God. But it was this very fact that creation had what they could see, what they could read embedded in that was the promise that there really is, as it says, a better city, a better country, that God was going to promise them. This, by the way, is why the Old Testament harps, and those of us who've been preaching through the Old Testament for the last six months have been nagging you, that the whole Old Testament and the whole Scripture is about getting back to a better Eden, fixing what was broken by sin and getting back to the way it was always meant to be, that something in us tells us that's what I was made for. And you know what that sense is? That's hope right there. That's hope for moving on. And so he goes on and talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then he gets into Moses, and then he starts talking about um, some amazing things that happened in terms of these kings and, 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 and judges, you know, Gideon and Samson, and he even includes Barak in there, which is interesting, David and Samuel and the prophets, and he talks about how they had victories by the sword, and they, the sword did not touch them, and so forth, and all these great things. But then all of a sudden in 35, verse 35, as he's going through, and that was amazing, and God did all these things, all of a sudden it changes. Look at this. Verse 35. Women received their dead raised back to life again. The most prolific one and the obvious one, obviously, is Mary. And there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. Hmm. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins that, you know, you could make two analogies. That, you know, John the Baptist and those guys that were, and Elijah that were living in sheepskins, goatskins. You could also make the analogy of these early Christians being 
uh, wrapped in animal skins and sent into the wild animals at the Colosseum. Destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Underline that if you're underlining. They wandered the deserts and the mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. You know, I just love this. You know why? Because it's so real. It's so raw. And it's, it's so honest, if you will. Um, <clears throat> and, and what this is clearly saying is, is that life, let alone the Christian life, is not one smoking victory after another. Have you noticed that? And it's not true, it's not, that's not the way it was for biblical people either. And, and, and as I said, the, the, the case is being made here that God uses even these kinds of lives and these kinds of situations and these kinds of tragedies and difficulties. They are not hopeless. He uses them against the devil ultimately, and he keeps ultimately everyone safe who's in the midst of that situation. You see, the principle that is in here is this. It's faith in this God, this kind of faith he's talking about is powerful enough for us to lean back into his promises even when things aren't all sweetness and light. This kind of faith is, is enough so we can lean back even when we're not sure where to go. And in the midst of leaning back into God's kind of faith, he does give you the hope. He gives you the joy that rises above and gets you through and past the circumstances. And I, I do have to call out one, one phrase here, three words, because it's striking and it's like, who in the world is that? And it's the phrase, sawed in two. <laughs> I, I, I look at that and I go, man, who, who, that's not in the Old Testament, and it's not. But we do have pretty good extra-biblical information about that. There's, a, uh, there's, a, there's an ancient Jewish writing, it's not a Bible writing, but an ancient Jewish writing called The Ascension of Isaiah. And, and, and it tells us the story of how Isaiah died. And Isaiah, of course, is the, 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 the prophet to kings of Israel, uh, like three or four of those kings, uh, and, you know, starting with Uzziah, and, and you know, that was his, his friend, but things went to bad to worse after that. And, and Manasseh was the longest-serving king in Israel, 55 years, but he was the most wicked king in terms of idolatry, in terms of killing people, and just a nasty dude, which is interesting God let him serve that long. Don't know why, but God's ways are higher than our ways, and he's got a plan. But so I, the story goes like this. Isaiah's running from Manasseh, and one of the, he finds this old rotten cedar tree that's been rotted out in the middle, and he finally he finds his way to hide in there and go in there. Well, the commander of um, Manasseh's forces who's chasing him finds him in there, sends a message to the king. What do you want us to do? He's, he's sitting in a tree. He says, lock him up in there and saw it in half. And that's exactly what they do. But according to this story that comes from this documentation, <clears throat> Isaiah, as he's being sawed in half, is spouting curses, prophetic curses on Manasseh, which actually come true very shortly. And then he moves on to talking about how awesome God is and how great it's going to be to be with him, as if he's looking up into heaven. Very similar to, to uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, or uh, Acts chapter 9. When he's being stoned and killed, and he looks up into heaven, he says, look, look, I see the Son of Man, that is Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, which really ticks him off because they didn't think he should be standing at the right hand of God because they knew who he was talking about. But so did, so did Stephen. Apparently he saw him. And, and here's the weird thing. When Jesus is seated anywhere else, or when Jesus is at the right hand of God anywhere else in Scripture, 
He's sitting down. That's the place in the throne room. But here he's standing up. Why? Because he's given him a standing ovation and he's welcoming him in. That's the kind of victorious hope right to the end that Isaiah apparently had in spite of this horrific thing. Now, I don't know anybody, I hope you don't know anybody, who's had this problem. But I do know this, that there are more Christian martyrs in the world today per year than at any other time in history. So I'll bet you that our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Iran and Syria and Pakistan and Sri Lanka and North Korea and you name it, Malaysia, I'll bet those people, when they read this, they're glued to it, right? Because that's the kind of things that they're experiencing. It also tells us that we should be praying for them, our brothers and sisters around the world. But also, if faith works in, if this faith that he's talking about works in those circumstances to give hope, don't you think they can work in our, don't you think it can work in our circumstances? That, I think, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, and he's trying to put this in here. He's trying to be honest about what happened to the, these people of God. But he's also saying, look, this works no matter what. God can do this no matter what. And it leads us right into and, and, and pushes us right on to the conclusion, which I believe is in chapter 12. I don't think there should probably be a chapter division here, but there is. But chapter 12, the first three verses, it tells us how Jesus fulfills this faith, how he lived this faith, and becomes a great example to us. Look at verse 1, these famous verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, I just need to pause there. He's talking about these great cloud of witnesses from the Older Testament, God's original story. All these people. I don't think he's saying that they're watching us. Okay, because there's nowhere else in Scripture that says that. I'm sorry to say. Uh, for one thing, they have way better things to look at than us. And they have somebody who's way more interesting and <laughs> amazing than us. But I do think he's saying we stand in their shoulders. They've gotten it this far. Now we, go, we take the next step. Because of what's next. Look at this. Because we have this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and... In, and uh, hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance. You could also translate that endurance. It's exactly the same word as the next two verses. With perseverance, the race marked out for us. Now, this race or this running, the Greek word, I'm going to tell you another Greek word here because I want you to hear how it sounds. It's the word agon. It's the word we get agony from. So if you've ever been an athlete, You've ever run a marathon, which I haven't, but I'm told it's like this. And I'm not going to, just in case you're wondering. But you get to the certain point where your legs ache, your lungs ache, you just, ah, oh, but you press on through. I've heard people tell me about the flow. You get a hit of adrenaline and the flow is like you're in another world and you're, you're going to do it. You know you're going to make it. I think that's kind of what he's talking about. Could it be that he's talking about sort of an, a spiritual hit of adrenaline, if you will, that God provides those things for us. But in order to do this, he says you got to shed some things. you got to get rid of some things that are holding you back, whether it be those pressures, those worries, those possessions, those pleasures, whatever it is that's changing. Now, in fact, I'm going to tell you something about how people did uh, the Agon, the, uh, the athletic contests 
in the, this world, in the ancient Greek world, ancient Roman world, okay? I'm not saying you should do this. I don't want anybody going out of here going, oh, I knew Eastridge was a cult. It's a cult, okay? It's not. Don't do this at home or even here. But in the ancient world, they used to run naked, right? Because you know why? They, wanted, they didn't want any clothes holding them back. They wanted all their muscles pulling in the same direction. They didn't want the wind catching anything. anything. That's how they did it. And that's the meta, when, when people read this, when uh, Paul, I mean, sorry, the writer of Hebrews said this, he was saying, you know, it's, it's this, it's this, that, that, that's the thought that would come to their mind. Oh, yeah, that's right. Athletes shed some stuff. They don't carry a bunch of extra baggage. In other words, that's the first principle we learn from Christ when we're living in this world. And that is, what is ahead is worth the joy. What is ahead is worth shedding some things now. Shedding some of the baggage, some of the stuff that we have. You know, it wasn't that many years ago, you know, maybe five, ten years ago. Nobody really remembers this anymore, but, but many of the, even of the self-help books, I'm not suggesting you go out and buy self-help books from five, ten years ago, but even the self-help books, I think it started with a guy by the name of Scott Peck, a psychologist, many of the psychology books, were talking about a thing called delayed gratification. Do you hear anybody talking about delayed gratification anymore? No. I just hear a lot about people talking about make sure your life is as comfortable as you can and don't make anybody else uncomfortable. I'm not suggesting that you should make a purpose in your life to go make people uncomfortable. Do not go out of here being an obnoxious Christian. Not saying that. I'm just saying that, you know what? Shedding some things that we really aren't going to need, you know, in the end, when, when, you're, when you're older or you're, you know, you're about to die or you can't do the things you used to do, I'm pretty sure you're not going to say, you know, should have watched that one more movie. I should have gotten on the computer and watched that junk I'm not supposed to see one more time. I should have gone to work more, spent less time with the kids and my wife or husband, right? I'm pretty sure we're not going to say that. And he's saying, why not shed it now and get rid of that stuff now before you get to that point so that you can run the race? Another Pauline metaphor, just saying. Look at verse 2. Instead, here's what we do. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him endured, there's the word again, the cross, scorning its shame, sat down, there he is, at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, what's interesting when it says he's the pioneer and perfecter of the faith, you might have a translation, the ESV, NASV, that say the founder of the faith. It means he's the initiator of the faith. It actually can also mean that he's the generator of your faith. He generates it. In other words, that's the second thing we learn from Christ, is that Christ creates all the faith that you need. He creates the faith, and we lean into his faith. It's, 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 um, it's just like in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 8. It says that faith is actually the gift of God. So back where it says, you know, where he said, you know, God commends you for the faith you have, he didn't expect us to be able to twist up as much as we can. Here, God, this is not faith. Isn't it awesome? No, because the only awesome faith is the faith that he generates, that he initiates. He sees our faith and he says, hey, that's good enough for me. Here's the faith you need. And we just lean back into his faith and rest in his faith. 
And so because of that, we have all we need. Christ has created all the faith that you need. And he gives it to us as a gift. He's the author and the generator of faith. And so that brings the summary to this, verse 3, finally. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Obviously talking about Jesus. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So now we've come full circle. Don't shrink back. It's possible to keep going. And there is better ahead. And for the joy set before you. Do you and, and notice the words, consider him. That's an emphatic thing. It means to think. It's like he says, think about this. Think about what Christ went through and what, what he's doing for you on a daily basis, on a regular basis. Think about him. Okay? Because that's the third principle. Thinking about Christ's work for you, what it does is it actually generate, energizes your heart. And what does that do? It raises hope. And pretty soon hope translates into joy. It's like, that's going to be awesome. In fact, I can see evidence now. I'm experiencing things now that that's awesome. In the midst of this horrible situation, I can, I can experience Christ now in a way that generates a sense of joy. Thank you for being here with me. That kind of thing. And, and, and so, so he, he says, shed some things and, and you know, um, receive the faith that he offers and lean into it. And on a daily basis, think about what it is Christ has done for you and all that he's gone through, and it'll help you interpret your own circumstances. You see, the whole point of the book of Hebrews, by the way, I'm just going to give you a one-word um, theme for the whole book of Hebrews. It's, it's stated in each of these three verses in the first part of chapter 12. It's endurance. Another way of saying, keep going. <laughs> I don't want to date myself, but way back in the day when I was in junior high, we would say, keep on trucking. Keep going, right? I mean, that's the endurance that, 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 that's the theme of this story. And I as we wrap this thing up, dads, I don't want to pick on us, but I'm going to anyway. I think we do have a role. We all have this role, but I'm focusing on dads. We have a role to model this for our kids. This kind of, you know what, there is a better day and a better reality out here regardless of what I'm experiencing now. And some days it's going to be easy because it's just awesome being alive. But being able to live that kind of life of faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, dads, we need to do that. And by the way, now you have a perfect metaphor for when you're skipping church and taking your kids to the ball game. Now you have a perfect metaphor when you're watching sports on TV. i got to watch this. The pastor says this is a metaphor. Because you have a metaphor that says, you know what, just like that athletic competition, that's what life is like with Jesus. And he's going to give me the faith, and he's going to give me what I need, and he's already given me the promise of what's ahead, win or lose in this particular game. I'm going to win the day. By faith, we're going to win the day. And you can tell your kids, tell your kids, you know what? What you're going to experience, whether you win or lose, is kind of like living with Jesus. There really is a reality of sort of a spiritual adrenaline that if you think about him, if you trust him, if you're willing to shed a few things that are holding you back, and you receive his faith and you lean into it, then yeah, he'll show up and you'll have that kind of extra energy and energizing hope. 
and you'll begin to see the joy that's out there set in front of you, and you'll go for it. And it's way more powerful than happiness. Great that you're happy, but that'll go away some days. It'll come back, but it'll go away. But joy never goes away, not this kind of joy, because Jesus never goes away. I'm going to call the band out here. As they come out, I just want to say one more thing. What if we, all of us Christians, just took those three things and lived them for the next two years? You know, we shed some things that were holding us back and we knew about it. We, we, we made a conscious and, and daily practical effort to say, Lord, I want to receive the faith that you're offering me today for whatever it is you've got for me today. And that we would think daily about what Christ has actually done for us. What if we just did that? Do you think things would be different? I mean, we have no power, dads. We figured this out a long time ago. We have no power to, to control what's coming 10, 20, 30 years ahead. So we have no power to control what our kids are going to face, what our grandkids are going to face. we got no power for that, right? But we do, by the, by the grace of Christ, have the ability and the power to decide how we're going to live and how we're going to lead and love our families and how we're going to lead and love our church families. So what if we did that? Don't you think it would be different? Let me pray for us and ask him to help us in that. Lord, we do pray for that kind of faith. That kind of faith that in the midst of when so many people are abandoning the possibility of believing in you, that we, as we believe in you, that we've received the hope that comes with that. And ultimately, as you exemplified for us, Lord Jesus, the, the joy, the deep sense of rightness and satisfaction and peace that comes, whether the times are happy or, that, or sad, difficult or not, or, or, or easy. And so, Lord, I pray that that kind of faith, as we move on into the Newer Testament and the story of what you've come to do for us, would be on our minds constantly, that we'd shed whatever else is getting in the way of us hearing it, living it, and believing it, and that we would receive the faith that you offer us to go along with our measly little faith that takes us to worlds unknown that we have not yet seen. I thank you for this church family. I thank you that people here are about this. I thank you that it's in our DNA to want to invite other people into that journey. And I just pray that this summer would be that kind of experience for all of us. Thank you for our dads, for the good times, for the bad times, at the very least for the reality that our Father brought us into this world. And Lord, I just pray that those who are fatherless, that you have told us that you, in fact, have a special spot in your heart for them. And I pray that today that they would be surrounded by your love and nurture as well. And for all of us, that we would most sincerely and most deeply experience the love of our Heavenly Father that will never, ever go away. We thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming for us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.